final investigator reviewing papers from ASCO was Dr. Blum, who began by commenting on perhaps the most discussed breast cancer presentation at the meeting, a phase three study of the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor lapatinib in patients with HER2-positive disease who had progressed on trastuzumab and anthracycline and ataxane. This was a trial designed for patients who had progressed despite an anthracycline and a taxane who were eligible for capecitabine. So the randomization was capecitabine at the FDA-approved dose, 2,500 per meter squared divided BID for 14 days versus lapatinib in conjunction with 2,000 per meter squared of capecitabine. And the exciting thing about this was the improvement in time to progression, which was improved from 20 weeks to about 36 weeks, and this was highly statistically significant with a hazard ratio of about 0.5. So this was very impressive. There wasn't improvement in survival, but I think this hopefully will allow for a new option for patients with HER2-new positive metastatic disease. What was seen in terms of side effects and toxicity? Some diarrhea and some acne, but not a lot of toxicity. The cardiac toxicity was minimal. And really, in all of the lapatinib trials, there has been some decrease in ejection fractions reported. Most of the patients in whom that occurred, the ejection fractions recovered, and it's been a minority of the patients. What do you think about the selection of capecitabine as the agent to combine with lapatinib? It's kind of interesting because, you know, we've been a little bit slow to utilize capecitabine with trastuzumab because of the Slayman and Pegram's in vitro work. I thought it was interesting that they chose capecitabine in this situation. There is some clinical data looking at trastuzumab and capecitabine that shows that it is effective. And this was a theoretical in vitro finding that Slayman had reported years ago, but I don't believe that that's real clinically. And the fact that this agent is showing benefit in conjunction with capecitabine is interesting. I would imagine it might have activity with other chemotherapeutic drugs, and we will have to find that out down the road. Where do you see lapatinib heading in terms of clinical research, the next step? There's some benefit that was reported at ASCO for patients with brain metastatic disease and for patients who have progressed despite trastuzumab. There weren't a lot of responders. I think there were two responders and a few stable disease. So it wasn't huge, but it's important in this group of patients for whom one has little else. It brings up the question of looking at this earlier on in the adjuvant setting, because we know that so many of these patients do go on currently. HER2 new positive patients will go on in the future to brain metastatic disease. So if there's some potential additive benefit, you could imagine the clinical trials that could develop out of that. So I think, one, it'll be looked at with other agents, perhaps earlier on in metastatic disease, and then moving on to the adjuvant setting. Where do you see lapatinib being utilized right now in a non-protocol setting? Hopefully it's going to be available very soon for compassionate use. Where do you see yourself using it? The compassionate use will allow it to be used in the same narrow setting that was exemplified by this trial. My understanding is that one can only use it with capecitabine for patients who have progressed despite an anthracycline and a taxane. And I guess trastuzumab also progressed in spite of trastuzumab. Yes. 
That would be a requirement for patients who have progressed despite trastuzumab. Right. Do you see, I guess, since adjuvant trastuzumab is being utilized more and more, I'm wondering about the face of metastatic HER2-positive disease and whether or not a significant number of patients now will have had prior adjuvant trastuzumab, at least if not now, certainly in the near future. How do you see sorting through that decision about whether to start up the trastuzumab again or maybe using lapatinib? I think we'll have to look for clinical trial data for that because the current standard would be to use trastuzumab. But I think that's an excellent question. One would think that those patients might be resistant to trastuzumab, but we don't even have any data to look at that in the current metastatic setting. The trial that was designed to look at that question never accrued patients, so none of us know when to stop trastuzumab for patients with progressing metastatic disease. I guess the question there, though, is a patient who's being treated with trastuzumab in the metastatic setting and progresses whether to continue it. But then this other issue is going to be if they've had adjuvant trastuzumab, maybe they've been off a few months, maybe they've been off a couple years. I guess that would make a difference, hypothetically, the duration of time off. But I think those are all questions to be answered in hopefully well-designed clinical trials. Anything else you want to say about that paper? No, I think it's an exciting paper. I think the compound is exciting. We've been participating in a trial looking at it for patients with brain metastatic disease who progressed despite trastuzumab. We've also been looking at it in a trial in conjunction with letrozole. And I think that's a very interesting approach as well for hormone-positive metastatic disease to see if there's a benefit. So I think we all have to look. This is one trial. We have to look at the many other trials that will come out. Let's talk about some of the other papers that were presented. Because of your history of clinical research with capecitabine, I asked you to review a bunch of studies that included capecitabine. The first one I wanted to ask you about is Abstract 517 by Lueck et al. This was an interesting trial from Germany and Austria, primarily Germany. And what they did was to look at patients with frontline metastatic breast cancer comparing epirubicin at 60 per meter squared with standard paclitaxel at 175 per meter squared given every three weeks versus capecitabine at 2,000 per meter squared divided BID days 1 through 14 with standard paclitaxel at 175 per meter squared. And the response rates were comparable. The progression-free survival was comparable. The toxicity was a little bit favorable for the capecitabine paclitaxel arm Although there was more hand-foot syndrome, there was much less neutropenia. So the conclusions of the authors was that this is a possible non-anthracycline regimen for upfront metastatic breast cancer patients. And of course, you've studied that combination yourself. Right. We've studied the combination of weekly paclitaxel with capecitabine at a lower dose, 1650 per meter squared divided BID, Gratishaw at Northwestern has looked at this at the same doses of paclitaxel every three weeks with the 1650 per meter squared. And both of our studies show a 50% response rate in primarily upfront metastatic breast cancer patients and a 65 to 70% clinical benefit rate. Both studies show really parallel toxicity, well-tolerated regimen. So I think this is another trial that's addressing this particular combination in the European setting at doses that the Europeans tend to use. Do the response rates, et cetera, seem comparable in this trial to what you saw? The response rate was 41% 
for EP and 41% for XP. I think that's in the same same ballpark. Right. Yeah. Is that a regimen that you utilize in your practice off-study? Yes, very commonly, because it's so well-tolerated. Although one will occasionally have to drop the dose of the capecitabine, even starting at that low dose of 1650. In our study, we had a dose intensity of about 75% for the capecitabine. It was about 90-plus percent dose intensity for the paclitaxel. So most patients in our study didn't have to dose modify for the paclitaxel, but they did for capecitabine. And I think that's a common experience when you use this drug for many, many cycles, that with time you have to drop the dose. There's another study I thought was interesting, sort of related in the same vein of metastatic disease and capecitabine, which is 570. Can you talk about that paper? Yes, this is a really lovely study, and it's been presented a couple of times. This is from a Mexican study, and Soto was the first author of this. Torcellus was the second author. And this is a very nice trial because it helps to tease out this question of combination therapy versus sequential therapy in parallel groups of patients. And it also addresses the question of which taxane. So what they did was to look at about 90-plus patients in each arm who either got sequential capecitabine followed by taxane or capecitabine plus paclitaxel or capecitabine plus docetaxel. And what was found was that the response rates were higher for the combination than the sequential and they were in the order of 65 to 74% for the combination compared with about 46% for the sequential. But when you looked at progression-free and overall survival, they were superimposable. So what this tells you is that response rates are higher in the combination, but it makes no difference in the end how long patients live and in terms of progression-free survival. So this is one of the first trials to actually tease out which taxane makes no difference and whether you can do it sequentially or in combination. And you can. You just lower the overall response rate. And I guess it reinforces the common thought that sequential single agents in general yields the same long-term results. Right. And it's a reasonable option for patients. It also tells you that if you're aiming for a higher response rate, that you do better with a combination. So you can select the patients that you choose based on what you think their biology might be. But in this nearly 300-patient trial, there wasn't a big difference for survival. Now, there was another trial where there was a difference in survival, and this is the trial from Sarajevo, Abstract 571. This was a trial that looked at a different sequence versus combination. It was looking at capecitabine plus docetaxel or docetaxel followed by capecitabine. And they saw a roughly a three-month difference in overall survival and time to progression and longer response duration, which really parallels the O'Shaughnessy large randomized trial data. And that trial, as you remember, was looking at capecitabine docetaxel versus docetaxel. So this really is asking a very similar question. And perhaps it does make a difference which agent you use first. I think that's the only conclusion that one can make in comparing these two posters, which were right next to each other. I guess one thing that was different than the O'Shaughnessy study was that the patients randomized initially to receive the single agent 
got the second agent on crossover, which right. is the criticism or thought that always came out of that O'Shaughnessy XT study. The doses were comparable. It was exactly the same dosing schedule as in the O'Shaughnessy trial, except for the addition of capecitabine at the end on disease progression. So maybe it makes a difference which drug you use first. The thing about capecitabine is this long-continued use of it, daily repetitive suppressive therapy with long duration. Maybe you do better with that compared with an intermittent bolus of therapy where you're capturing cells that would be dividing along the way as opposed to only hitting them intermittently. Maybe that is the difference. Let's slip over to diagnostics. And another paper I wanted your thought on was Abstract 530, looking at PET scanning and breast cancer. That was a very nice paper and one that got a lot of attention by the audience because everyone, I think, has been interested in trying to figure out is there a better way of trying to stage breast cancer. And this trial was looking at a piece of a whole set of imaging modalities in staging patients with breast cancer. But what was presented was looking at the impact of PET, and this was from the University of Pennsylvania. And the bottom line from the study was that there was no benefit from using PET to stage patients with breast cancer. Can you kind of go through exactly who the patients were and how they did this? They looked at 200 women. The mean age was 51, but with a broad range of 28 to 81. They underwent a variety of different tests mammography, sonography, digital mammography, and breast MRI to evaluate the breast, and then looked at PET scans and CT, bone scan, plain films, and the MRI. So if there was a positive PET, then the patients went on to get a variety of other tests. And what was found in this trial was that most of the things that were picked up by PET were non-malignant and unrelated to breast cancer. And there was only one patient with a positive PET scan that wasn't identified with metastatic disease by any other modality. All of the other patients turned out to have totally unrelated findings, findings that were not attributable to breast cancer. What fraction of women had metastatic disease? 19 were true positive for metastatic disease, Two were true positive for non-neoplastic disease, and 29 or 58% were false positives. And the positive predictive value was only 40%. So it added very little additional information based on the low positive predictive value. And the cost is prohibitive. Are there situations where you've used PET scanning, and are you going to rethink it at this point? The only time I've used PET scanning in early breast cancer staging, not in someone who you find something on an imaging test that you're trying to clarify is this metastatic or not later on, but in the early stage setting is only to clarify something that was so indeterminate. But the gold standard is to biopsy things. So, and there can be false negative PET scans. For example, I think bronchovelar lung cancer is often a false negative on PET scanning. So I'm not sure if it really helps you to find something on PET scan. Another paper I wanted to ask you about, because I know you have an interest in prevention and you have a high-risk clinic, was the STAR trial NSABP presentation that Dr. Wickerham gave. This was the first presentation of the STAR trial, and the data were initially presented in a press release. There wasn't a lot more provided. There was some more details 
But the bottom line was that the impact of tamoxifen or raloxifene in high-risk women was equivalent for the development of invasive breast cancer, and the risk reduction compared to what one would expect from the Gale risk models was about 50%, about the same as what we had seen before in the P1 trial. The only thing that was really interesting and exciting and different, and we don't know what it means, is that there wasn't a comparable decrease in the number of cases of DCIS in the raloxifene-treated arm. And I don't think anyone really understands what this means. I don't understand what this means, because you would think that the impact on invasive breast cancer would be less if the impact on DCIS was less from raloxifene, and that wasn't found to be the case. So biologically, I'm not sure what this means. The safety profile was favorable for raloxifene in that there was less uterine cancer, less uterine hyperplasias, less bleeding episodes that led to procedures being done. There was less thromboembolic risk also associated. From a safety point of view, it provides patients with another alternative for risk reduction. And I think patients just need to be counseled about this discrepancy in the risk reduction for DCIS and some of the uncertainty about what that means. Any way to estimate what the risk from raloxifene is for endometrial cancer and thrombosis compared to placebo, since obviously there was no placebo arm in the study? I guess the only way that one could extrapolate from that would be to go back to the P1 trial and look at the differences. And these patient populations are comparable, I would think, although the P1 trial included premenopausal women. So one would have to look at the postmenopausal subset of P1 to try to address that. What do you see as the practical clinical implications of this, particularly in terms of management of high-risk patients with high risk for breast cancer? I think this will be an attractive option for patients because one of the main deterrents for women taking tamoxifen has been the risk of uterine cancer. Women are really frightened about taking a drug to prevent a cancer to then get a cancer. And that has led to a lack of desire of most women to take tamoxifen for prevention. It's the kind of thing where you can talk until you're blue in the face and talk about all the good aspects of it, but the perception is that this is a potentially dangerous drug. Plus, the hot flashes are bothersome to patients. So I think this will be a more attractive option for patients. So if a patient is considering raloxifene and asks you, is this going to increase my risk of endometrial cancer, how are you going to respond? I think one can say that the risk is lower than the risk of tamoxifen. Anything else you want to say about that trial? No, I think it presents new options for patients, and I think it is an advance. It is amazing how many women contributed to this and what effort it took to find this out. And I think we still need better options for patients for prevention that will have fewer toxicities and safety and still have benefits. So the perfect serum hasn't been developed yet as far as I'm aware. I know in the United Kingdom and probably in the U.S., aromatase inhibitors are going to be looked at in high-risk women. How do you think that's going to play out? I think that's also very interesting. The downside for patients is the joint aches, which are bothersome to about 25% or so of patients and would probably contribute to women not wanting to choose that option. But I think the more options that are available, the better. That certainly has a lower risk of thromboembolic complications. It's very encouraging based on the breast cancer trials that we already have in terms of contralateral risk reduction. And so this is going to be looked at. And 
It also is being looked at in the setting of DCIS, lumpectomy for DCIS plus minus, lumpectomy radiation therapy for DCIS plus minus, tamoxifen or anastrozole. Do you think that five years from now we're going to be using an AI for DCIS as opposed to tamoxifen? We'll have to see. Another paper I wanted to ask you about was Abstract 536, evaluating a common question that oncologists have, which is the issue of patients who've had neoadjuvant chemotherapy and looking at what their residual cancer burden is. Can you talk about that paper? Basically, what the investigators at MD Anderson and colleagues were trying to do is to come up with a numerical quantitative risk of recurrence based on the residual burden of disease. And it's a complicated formula that you plug in numbers. And I've seen the formula. So you plug in the pathologic measurements of the tumor size and the post-treatment size and the number of positive lymph nodes and have much involvement in the lymph nodes. And it's a complex formula that spits out a number. And basically, the higher the number, the higher the risk of reoccurrence. It's intuitively obvious. I mean, we know that patients who have a complete pathologic response do better than those who don't. But this gives us a quantitative assessment. I don't know if it's going to achieve wide use. I think it would be useful in clinical trial settings as a way of quantifying The bottom line for this is that for patients who are undergoing preoperative chemotherapy, if you don't have anything else to give them that's going to help them, this doesn't matter. What only matters is if you can develop a trial design that then says, okay, we'll test compound X versus compound Y, or some scenario that then will show that you can do something for those patients who have a persistent burden of disease, and then say whether that will help them. So if this leads to being able to better quantify that, then that would be interesting. I have heard discussions about trials looking at this question. I think that the bevacizumab metronomic cytoxin methotrexate regimen is going to be looked at in this kind of a situation. You would think that maybe some kind of objective measurement like this could help in terms of stratification. Mm -hmm. Who gets what and how to study it. I think it's not ready for prime time for clinical practice if there's nothing else that you can do to change that person's outcome. But it's a useful tool. Let's talk a little bit about the HERA trial update that was presented. This is an update of the HERA trial, which was originally presented at ASCO last year, and it's longer follow-up of the patients who received one year of trastuzumab after completing adjuvant chemotherapy versus the control group who didn't. This doesn't look at all at the two-year trastuzumab-treated patients. The patient characteristics were all well outlined, The disease-free survival with median follow-up of two years is now with a hazard ratio of 0.64, and it's highly statistically significant. The absolute benefit is about 6% for disease-free survival. So this is just giving us longer follow-up to tell us that this has benefit for a group of patients, most of whom did not receive an adjuvant taxane and obviously didn't get trastuzumab in conjunction with their chemotherapy. What about survival? Median survival was also improved with a hazard ratio of 0.66 and almost a 3% improvement. And that was statistically significant? It was at 0.0115, so less than the time to progression, but still statistically significant. What's your overall take on the paper? I think that this demonstrates that trastuzumab after chemotherapy within a six-month window provides improvement in disease-free and overall survival and should be considered. 
for patients who do not receive trastuzumab up front with their chemotherapy. I think ideally in the United States, most patients since 2005, since ASCO, are receiving trastuzumab in conjunction with chemotherapy. So this has impact for those patients who had previously received chemotherapy and were within the time window of the study. Now the question it's still unanswered is, how long after completing chemotherapy is there benefit from trastuzumab? And this trial does not answer that question. But in my mind, there's likely to be benefit at least a year out from chemotherapy and perhaps longer. And that depends on what the absolute risk of reoccurrence would be. What about abstract 658? This was an interesting study from Greece looking at patients receiving either venerelbine plus gemcitabine versus capecitabine in the metastatic setting for patients who had previously had an anthracycline and a taxane. And it wasn't a huge trial. It was 114 patients divided in the two arms. But what was striking was that the median duration of response was so much greater with the capecitabine arm compared with the venerelbine gemcitabine arm. So here's the numbers. The numbers were median duration of response was 5 versus 12 months, time to progression 3.7 versus 5.8 months, and the response rate was comparable, 26% versus 24%. So what was interesting is that although the response rates were equivalent, the duration of response was greater for the capecitabine arm, which perhaps is reflected in those earlier studies that we were talking about, that perhaps long-term therapy with capecitabine may have a better suppressive effect than intermittent therapy with an anti-metabolite and a cell cycle type drug affecting the tubulin structure. I think it's an interesting study. It's not that big of a study. certainly provides more data on relative comparisons of different metastatic regimens. About 664. This is a Spanish study looking at neoadjuvant therapy with capecitabine and docetaxel. And it's a small study at 34 patients The response rate was really quite striking. They had 78% with 5 CRs and 20 PRs. 20% had a pathologic complete response, which is in the ballpark for about the best that we can get with preoperative therapy in the 20 to 25% range. They had 33% were N0. So this is a highly active regimen in the preoperative setting. I think this is a reasonable option for patients in whom one would not want to use an anthracycline, for example, for patients who have a decreased ejection fraction secondary to hypertension or congestive heart failure. So I think this is another example of this combination in the metastatic and in the locally advanced setting. Any way to kind of indirectly compare what was seen here with capecitabine and docetaxel compared to what's been seen in other neoadjuvant studies with anthracyclines and taxanes? Well, the NSABP B27, the best data that we have so far is a 25% pathologic CR rate. I think if you look at all of these different chemotherapy trials, and there are a bunch of them that are in the book this year, they're all in the same ballpark, this 20 up to 25%, some are 15%, but in that ballpark, it's only if you can add some kind of targeted therapy that you can really overcome the limitations of chemotherapy and do better. 
And the best data that we have is Buzdar's data on that. And it's a small series, obviously, but 65% pathologic CR rate is the best we've ever achieved. That's with her, with her trastuzumab in her two new positive patients. So it shows you the power of targeted therapy over just chemotherapy alone. I think all of these studies point to this. You seem to get up to a maximum, and you can't seem to go beyond it. From a practical point of view, what regimen do you use in a non-protocol setting? That's a really good question, and I wrestle with this because we look to the NSABP data for the non-HER2-new-positive patient, and that's about the best that we have. Is that any better than, let's say, acetaxel dose-dense or acetaxel vis-a-vis the Joe Sperano data, AC followed by weekly paclitaxel? It probably doesn't make any difference. But none of these regimens have been compared head-to-head in the preoperative setting. All of the trials in the preoperative setting have been small series, individual series. So I end up picking the regimen based on toxicity more than anything else. So will capecitabine and docetaxel now be added to that list? I've used this in patients in whom I can't use an anthracycline. And so I've used this anecdotally. I've used taxotere and cytoxan and capecitabine docetaxel. But I've really restricted that to patients in whom there's a reason why I don't want to use an anthracycline. What do you think about the relative safety and toxicity of capecitabine, docetaxel, in this situation, neoadjuvant, compared to some of these other regimens? I think it's the same typical side effects that one gets with this regimen, which is fluid retention, skin toxicity, fatigue, asthenia, tearing. It's not an easy regimen. It's a little easier up front than it is following an anthracycline, but even so, it has a lot of toxicities. I do not like to use docetaxel and capecitabine. I prefer paclitaxel and capecitabine as a combination in the metastatic setting because it just seems to be is equally active and better tolerated. I think there must be some unique combination of the skin toxicity that you get with docetaxel that when you combine it with capecitabine, it really is a problem for patients. And you throw on top of that the asthenia from docetaxel. I think all of these regimens are nice to know what the response rates are in small series. This trial also looked at some biological correlates to look at thymidine phosphorylase and DPD and all these interrelationships in terms of the metabolism of capecitabine to see if one could predict who might do better. And that's been out there. And I guess the NSABP is toying with the idea, or I think they're actually moving forward, looking in the neoadjuvant setting. I believe their study, the last iteration I heard was docetaxel versus docetaxel plus capecitabine versus docetaxel plus gem, all those with or without BEV. Right. All of these studies, we need to look beyond the chemotherapy and to look at other agents that are working in an entirely new set of mechanisms. And it makes you wonder whether the differences in any of the chemotherapy will end up disappearing. That would be my bet, that any more targeted therapy is going to hopefully swamp the benefit of one individual chemotherapy compared with another. But again, you'd have to wait for the data. I guess the other thing about the NSABP, and I know in U.S. oncology it's been the same thing, is a shift towards neoadjuvant studies that focus on pathologic CR and looking inside the tumor as opposed to longer-term analyses of disease-free survival, et cetera. Right. I think because the other trials, such as the NSABP, B27, involve so many patients, so that in thinking about using patient resources the best way possible to look at surrogate markers, which is pathologic CR. 
This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Cancer Conference Update.